Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to this week's episode of Evolving to Exceptional. We have another fantastic guest with us this week, Sandra Davis. She is the Director of People Development, and she has had just an extensive and very interesting career in the learning and adult development space and how people learn and her experience in HR. And I'm really excited to dive into some of those topics and dive into the the importance of, of how you craft that training and that learning and development in a way that resonates and creates the learning results and the the outcomes that you want to achieve. Before we get into all of that, Sandra, I want to give you a chance to just to give us a little bit of background about who you are, your experience, how you got to where you are, and why it is that you do what you do every day, what it is that you're so passionate about. Oh, thank you. So I finished my degree in the late 90s when instructional design was really, I think, really hitting the forefront. I went straight into training for software because it was Y2K time and everybody was getting ready for that. Had some great successes there. I have done a lot of software training, actually, but I took some time off when I had sick kids, eventually came back to it. And since then, I've done training for pharma. Oh, let's see, hospitality, customer service, banking, and and now I'm doing sales, which is a full new experience. I let's see, what is it that gives, lights you up? What is it that gives you so much energy to go to work every day? That just get, is your passion or your sense of inspiration. I really enjoy helping people feel like they're ready and confident and able to do the job. I have this story when I was still in college. I, I took a summer job at McDonald's. I don't even know if I should say that, but went to McDonald's. I was my very first day, got very little training. And within the first hour, two school buses showed up and someone said, oh my God. And they're all panicking. And I didn't, I hadn't learned anything yet. And at the same time, the owner of the, sh- the franchise walked in and started screaming at me because I wasn't doing anything. And I don't want anyone to ever feel like that. And there's no reason why anyone should ever feel. And that's obviously an extreme case, but even a tinge of that, if you can avoid it and helping people get ready is great. So what a transformative memory and experience <laughs> to create like that inspiration, right? That's such a, I can see, especially given where you were in your development at that time of that being just such a transformative experience and just a, okay, we can do this better. We can do this, this differently. Now, you and I talked about in an earlier call, we talked about your training and development as a learning professional and that experience that you had and and what was covered and how and my specialty in terms of neuroscience, how that really wasn't incorporated or, or talked about the way that you would have thought it, it would be. What would you say was really the focus of the learning and development training or the background that that you got as part of your development that has shaped your how you deliver and how you put together the training that you create? The focus of the program that I went through was really upon the outward visible performance of a task. And 
in order to get there, there was assessment that had to be conducted, proper data collection to make informed decisions, and then structuring those tasks in the order from most co- least complex to most complex. And then how do you sequence them so that people can make sense of it and let, let their brain digest it? Um, but ultimately, it was about the measurement of the task. So if you couldn't see it, you couldn't measure it. And I think we talked, we, you touched on it, and then we talked about neuroscience was not talked about at the time. Why or how does the brain process information? It was just these things work. And I still stick to those things. They still work. But now with the medical technology and the, the visibility that we have into the brain function, now I know why those things work. So it's really interesting now to see how it's all coming together. It is. I I find it fascinating when you get to see some of the studies within the neuroimaging that they can do now that validate those principles or validate how you have to deliver things in a particular way in order to create that learning or in order to, to create that result or outcome. And I think often people underestimate how the difficulty of adult education and learning and development and what it takes to do it effectively. It's not just putting a slide deck together with a lot of words on it that doesn't impart a lasting development. Can you tell us a little bit about why, you know, what it takes to make adult education effective? Like what all goes into, maybe not all because that would be a lot, but some of the key elements that go into crafting that in a way that is impactful and creates results for people. Okay. So I think there's become, when I got out of school, there's a thing called the Dick and Carry model, which has since been simplified to ADDIE. And everybody throws around ADDIE, which stands for Assessment, Analysis, Design, Development, Implementation, Evaluation. And it's all of those pieces. It's not just creating a slide deck. It's not just the presentation itself. In fact, the presentation is really only about maybe, well, the presentation itself is such a small part, the design, the lesson design, and creation, maybe it's 20% of that. Where you get the biggest bang for your buck is that upfront assessment and analysis of tasks. Going in and observing people doing the job now, talking with leadership about how you want the job to be done and what you want the results or the outcome to be. What types of outcomes are you looking for, really? And comparing that. So designing data collection instruments and then surveys, interview protocols, observation checklists, and then putting it into process flows. Because if the process isn't clear now about what's happening, the process that you want to create to compare it to, you you can't compare it. There's no one-to-one correlation. And so you can't identify the gaps. Once you can identify the gaps, then you need to decide what tasks are necessary that have to be ingrained in people in order to perform a certain process. And Those go from simple to complex and require different types of thought processes. And so you have to design the structure of the training and the message around that sequence and that proposed structure through learning theory. But then once you have a design and a prescription for a a performance solution, which may be training and it maybe might not be, you also have to think about how people are going to receive that change in their life. And so you have to craft a message that appeals to them. So there's a bit of sales in it, cadence, anticipating the fear and the threat that people feel because that threat from change is very real and you want to 
head off that resistance ahead of time. So transparency and good planned communication is really important as well. But then after the training is implemented, we have these smile sheets. That's not enough. There's testing and designing a test instrument that really evaluates whether or not people understood and can use what you crafted, what you presented to them. And does it translate down the road to the outcomes that the business leaders wanted to see? And are people happy with that? And if not, reiterating and evaluating all that data and reiterating your design so that you can continually make it better and get better and better results. There's a lot in that you just covered. And so much what I want to emphasize is there's so much thought and understanding and intention that goes into everything you just described. What it makes me think of is the challenges right now, course content or training content is exploding even more quickly with the release of chat GPT and AI, because you can essentially use AI to create uh, training content for you to create or, or to write the information for you. But the, it begs the question, does that call into bring into account all of the things that you just described in actually translating to learning experiences where people understand what they've just what they've just gone through or or what they've just learned in a way that creates results. And I love that you talked about the assessments to really be able to measure whether it was effective or whether it created the results or outcomes you would want it to see, right? So yeah, and with AI, I think anybody in a creative industry is a little bit on alert right now, for sure. The anxiety inducing, right? But I, I, and I don't know enough about AI to say for sure. I think you could put a, you could probably put an Addy template in there and it could cook out something, but I don't know that it can really take into that, into account the human empathy and how it really translates. And I, and I don't think the AI can observe a person in action and grade their behavior or grade their performance. Um, certainly if you have written tests, but written tests aren't about the job. They're about how much it's not what you can do. So that's not, it's not going to get to that level of outcome that you want to see evidence for. And certainly if you were to create an outline for training, I think that AI could be very effective in adding the text and taking away some of that script writing and saving time there. But what goes into deciding what should be in that script and what the structure should be, that's a very analytical process. And, and I, I'm dubious about whether or not AI is capable of that. Yeah. I, and, I, and I love something else you said in the, the steps you go through to create kind of that message in understanding or oh, the, the challenge of your audience or understanding what, what the resistance might be. We know that our brains are, are and our bodies are hardwired to like the familiar, to go back to states where it's comfortable and it's familiar. It's why breaking bad habits is so difficult and can be so challenging because our brains just like to fall into rhythm and pattern. And that's all to conserve energy, right? That's all to conserve energy. Our brain uses 25% of our calories, even though it's only two pounds, right? Like it, it uses a tremendous amount of energy and it has to conserve that. And it does that by falling back into patterns of, of behavior. And so when people say, I often think it's interesting because we talk about change as be people being fearful of change. And, and I sometimes wonder whether it's really fear or it really is just their neurobiology responding to, oh, this is going to take more work. Do I have to do more work? Do I have to expend more energy to do it differently? 
Um, and so it's an interesting, I think, way of approaching change as not necessarily something that's scary. It could be for some people, depending on their situation, but it may be actually a neurophysiological response and not a true fear response. Yeah, I get that. I I agree with you on that point. Fear is a generic term for that whole sense of resistance that people feel, especially if people aren't familiar with the whole neuroscience language and, and philosophy, just um, feeling that tension in their body and not knowing why it's there. But as a designer for instruction and performance improvement initiatives, just knowing that it is a fact that people go through that. They can't necessarily put words to it, but it's there. Um, but you did say something about the habits that we have and resistance to habit change and things like that. And that's you made me think of a point that's really important to me. Training is not a one and done message. And that's a frustration, a point of frustration for me sometimes when I'm designing. You can't just expect to give a message and expect behavior change first day out. It's something that's got to be led up to and then maybe given but also in bite-sized chunks that people can digest and progress. And we called it linking. It's like when you learn to tie your shoes, you don't learn it all at once. You learn one step at a time. So building on itself, but then also reiterating it and doing checks along the way and a and couple of weeks out and a couple of months out to see if that behavior change is sticking. And if it's not, where can we reiterate the message or find the message or the training? And with coaching and feedback and things like that to make sure that the behavior that we're targeting is there. And I, I think what's interesting and the way I think about that is we talk about training and development, but oftentimes we only focus on the training part of the training and development. And the development part is just as important. And that's that integration of the training that you're talking about into what we're doing, the actual development of the the skill or the behavior that we're wanting people to demonstrate or to exhibit. And one of the things I think is it is an interesting way to think about it is if you go back to children learning, because it's really visible in, in children, right? Like when they're really little and how they just keep practicing all the time. Babies who just keep trying to stand up and walk, trying to stand up and walk, trying to stand up and walk over and over until they eventually get it. And you see that again and again and as kids are developing different skills. And I think sometimes we forget as adults that we have to do that too, that we have to keep doing and practicing and incorporating that skill or that behavior in order to create that neural pathway, in order to create the learning, the development side that ingrains it into how we exist or how we do things versus just taking in the the knowledge. Agreed. And I think, uh, so resilience, yes. And actually, that's one of the pieces of my current implementation or strategy is making sure that there are resilience and, and thought messages out there to cause people to think about, what am I struggling with? How do I take that next step? How do I get back up and try again? Because we have been taught throughout our lives, once you get to school, it was like, no, this is not right. That's wrong. Do it this way. And but we come to believe that there is a certain specific way to do things. And in some cases in the world of work, that's true as well. But we've gotten a message that it's wrong to make a mistake. And in fact, mistakes are what make you more whole. They bring richness to life. They create new ideas and they help learning people identify challenges that we maybe didn't anticipate. But I also think play, you mentioned children, and I think play is such a crucial part of learning because the motivation is there. 
And how many times have you, how long has it been as an adult since you spent the night talking with somebody until the sun came up and said, oh my gosh, this time. Learning should not be boring. It should be engaging and fun. And so I also infuse as many times as I can games. One time I created a customer service strategy around the, the Clue board game where they visited different parts of the property to explore how to behave in those different parts of the business. And so play, I think, is really important to help take the fear or threat or worry about boredom, all of those concerns out of training, and also at the same time, make it more fun because people are fully present in the activity. And if you, if, if I bring the neuroscience perspective to what you just talked about, when we can bring our brains into a coherent or a play state, a state where we're regulated, we're engaged, we're enjoying the experience, we're going to retain more of that experience. We're going to integrate more of those insights. And this kind of ties to the emotional energy. And depending upon the energy that we have, the, the, the emotion that we're experiencing, we're going to either have more or less energy. I often talk about positive energy emotions that add energy and negative energy emotions that take energy away. So if we enter a training or development opportunity or a learning and development opportunity in a like negative, this is going to be hard, this is going to be difficult, uh, fear of change, all those, all those types of emotions, we're taking energy away from our learning experience. But if we can show up in that play, let's have fun with this. Let's enjoy this time. Let's make the most of this. This is good. This is good for my brain and my body to do this exercise because our bodies and brains are meant to keep creating neural pathways. That is why we exist as humans is to keep rewiring and, and evolving and changing ourselves. And so I think that it's interesting that if you can find those ways to make it joyful, you're going to access those energy reserves and be able to retain more of that information or that experience. And one of the things that we were really drilled on in my program before I ever entered the world is of work was how important motivation is to the learning process. And if the motivation isn't there, there is resistance from the get-go and you're not going to be able to penetrate that. So you've got to find a way to, to tap into the motivation. But you also said something about we're, we're built, we're designed to keep learning. And how many times do we hear about that person who retires and then sits at home and they just age so much more quickly in the five years after retirement or whatever, because they don't have that sense of purpose. They don't have that motivation. They're not continually learning. And that's such a sad thing. So I really, I'm so passionate about lifelong learning just to head that whole problem off for society, not just for the workforce. Um, but if you go back even, I was just reading a, an excellent book by David Eagleman around the brain. He did a, a special a TV special a number of years ago, but the book is probably seven or seven to 10 years old at this point. And I started to read it and I immediately found something that was contradictory to what I had since learned, what I've learned in my neuroscience certifications. And that is around neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons that our brains actually produce new neurons. And so even five, 10 years ago, we used to think that we were born with a certain number of neurons and those neurons would die off and we couldn't create new ones. And we now know that's not true, that we can generate not just new neural pathways, but actually new neurons in our bodies and, and brains. And I think what's really interesting about that is 
what you said about people retiring is the belief that I'm done learning, the belief that I've, I can't take on anymore. When you change that to recognize, oh, no, you can learn anything. You can learn anything at any point and pivot. And in, in the world today, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, of people having to learn entirely new skill sets or decide to pursue completely new career paths and develop skill sets in those spaces. And the exciting thing is that your brain and body are wired to do that, that you are perfectly capable of accomplishing that. And we know from science and studies that you'll live longer if you do that. And not just live longer, but why are you living longer? Because you are enriched. Yeah. There's this sense ever since I discovered this possibility that you can teach an old dog new tricks. It just opens up a world of possibilities of where you can go and what you, instead of getting to this point where you feel resigned to, this is my, this is where I have to go. The world opens up when you realize that the brain is still malleable for so long. And you said something earlier that I think is, was really impactful, or I want to dive into a little bit around the resistance to some of the development or that growth or change. And and how, because often one of the things I saw in my own training and development time period in the workplaces as a, as a talent management professional was I would often train people on things and they knew what to do and how to do it. And they even often wanted to do it, but then they still wouldn't do it. And one of the things that I've observed is that we often stop at the behavior when we think that there's an issue or something someone needs to do differently in terms of an action, we train a behavior and that we keep giving behavioral based advice and suggestions. And here's what you need to do. And one of the things I know you're equally passionate about is what le lies below the behavior in terms of the thoughts, feelings, emotions. And then what I think of or, or what I think is probably the most important is the physiology. But even just going one layer down into the thoughts to understand what's blocking or what's preventing someone from developing that behavior or exhibiting that behavior and, and getting that result is really important. Can you tell us just a little bit about your experience with th that, with those thought processes and how understanding the power of your mindset and your thoughts can help to impact your behaviors and ultimately your learning and development? Sure. So one of the things right now I'm doing sales training, which there's a lot of phone conversations and things like that. And the, the conversations can go off the rails, right? And one of the things that I teach the salespeople to do is, okay, when you notice a call goes off the rails, I want you to think back to the moment where it shifted. What did you feel? And the next time you have that in a call, to recognize it, to notice where in your body you're fighting the the right thing or the thing you need to do and why you chose to go the other direction. So to pay attention to those subtle voices, those subtle things that take you off track. Some people call it metacognition. And I did an article about that that I posted on LinkedIn. Jeff Goldblum in, in Jurassic Park says, you were so busy thinking about what you could do. You never thought about why you should. And that is it right there. The Jeff Goldblum effect. And I love throwing him in because he's so ultimately cool. And, but that's really what it is thinking about the next best action to take or the next best thing to say. But it's not limited to calls. It's a task on a floor where your next behavior, it could be the difference between an injury and not an injury or 
in life, making the right choice to pursue a certain role in a career or to make a complete career shift. All of those things to think about the drivers and to notice it within yourself. And I I think what's interesting about those choices is really our lives are essentially an endless series of or an infinite series of decisions of many to major decisions where we're making decisions all day long, either conscious or unconscious of what we do, where we go, what we choose to spend our time on, what we don't choose to spend our time on. And if we're not if we're not doing that from a metacognition or a higher conscious intentional state, we run the risk of allowing our pre-programmed behaviors, our pre-programmed neural pathways to run the show. Sometimes that might be okay, but sometimes it might not, especially if those are no longer serving our best interests. If those thoughts that we're having or the mindset that we have, I always like to use the example of the person who is always really negative. The sky's always falling. Everything is always going wrong. And inevitably, the more they think that way, the more it seems like everything keeps going wrong. Right? We're just reinforcing it. And so it has this is this impact and it makes a big difference because your choice in how you see things or how you think about things is going to impact your behavior and your action, right? Yes. And I used to be, honestly, I used to be the negative Nelly. And uh, yet I didn't understand how it was off-putting because I thought I was just seeing problems to solve, but I wasn't communicating it clearly. Mm-hmm. And then that being aware of that then allows me to reframe it as an opportunity instead of a negative thing. And actually that drives down to where I began in this whole mindfulness and neuroscience thing started with gratitude. I was in the pit of depression and I had it, it came out of nowhere. And I decided, you know, what's the one thing I haven't tried yet? And it's gratitude. And so changing your mind every morning, putting on a new pair of shoes, it's not comfortable, but you make a choice and seeing the positive in a situation and, and choosing that. And then you are gradually changing the way you think about those things. And the thing is, it is a practice. It takes practice. And I I'm say that's why they call it mindfulness practice is because it's like a muscle. You have to train it and it gets weak if you ignore it. Um, well, and gratitude, it's interesting. Uh, there's, I, d- I don't remember all the technical terms for this, so I'm going to say it in very vague, a vague sense. You can look it up if you want to, but they did studies around gratitude that showed that there's this particular chemical that gets released when we're experiencing gratitude. And that chemical in our brain actually makes it easier for information and things to flow within our brain. And so it's not just that it feels good. The gratitude practice actually changes your neurophysiology in a way that produces better results in your life, in a way that produces better outcomes in your life, allows you to see more possibilities, make decisions more effectively. And so that practice, I did it too for a long time and it had such a big impact. And then I stopped doing it thinking, oh, I figured this out. But it really makes a difference because if you're not doing it consistently, you're not going to get that effect in terms of your neurophysiology. I think my, my experience is similar. You can tell when you've stopped. But I think it's just so cool what you said about the, the neurochemistry that makes it makes you more effective to retain information or to, to be more malleable, to be more resilient. I, I just think it's it's a miracle of our bodies and the way that they're working together with our brains and how it's so interconnected. And I, I, just, I, I love it. This makes me happy. 
Yes, a hundred percent. And it's interesting because my experience now, obviously, this is my space and this is what I love. But the more that I understand it, the more that I understand my neurophysiology and and how the different pieces work together, the better I am able to change it. The better I'm able to intentionally shift and craft and adjust my life and my life experience. Now, it's not perfect. I still struggle too. However, you get to move more into that that direction. And honestly, that's one of the reasons that I'm infusing mindfulness into the training that I do. I don't necessarily call it mindfulness because people have a there's a stigma attached with it that I have to overcome. But I've been become exposed to this stuff and I've had the I've been blessed to be exposed to this stuff. And I want to get the word out to others who are because it is life changing and and it's a little sad to me that everybody doesn't know this and everybody doesn't hear this because I want people to experience the the life changing eye opening experiences that I've had and I, I agree with you there's a stigma i I had it too it's similar to the the stigma that people have around around meditation or meditation practices. And one of the ways that I like to frame that up or think about it for myself, because I had that limiting belief myself of, I don't have time to meditate. Like, I can't do that. That's a silly thing. I have that kind of mentality is to think of it as brain health, as that if you that if that taking the time to become present and aware is replenishing your cells, is replenishing your body and it's and how it's operating and how it's fueling your brain. And I sometimes use the example of when we don't take time to do that work for ourselves, we don't take time to do that for our brains and bodies. It's like trying to drive a car with three wheels and one of them's flat. And so you're you can't get anywhere, right? You're, You're moving, but like you're destroying yourself in the process. You would never do that. You would take your car in. You would get a new wheels. You'd get the flat tire replaced. You'd add another one on. You would never drive a car in that state. But we're actually doing that all the time with our brains and bodies, where we are trying to perform really difficult and challenging tasks in our lives with half of our resources tied up or injured in the process. Agreed. And I was that girl too. I, I resisted the whole idea of meditation and mindfulness because it was flaky or something. I don't know. But once I decided to try it because I was at my wits end, I, you don't know until you try it. We're here sifting this really, or talking about this really great life-changing thing, but until you try it, you really just, and I, I lost my train of thought and you said something there, but. So let's shift gears a little bit here because I want to talk a little bit about your experience and some of the challenges that you're experiencing right now in in the role you're performing and in the workplace and the business that you're in right now. Can you tell us just a little bit about those challenges and what stage your, your current business is in and, and what you're facing as part of that? Okay. So I think there are probably two big, two or three big challenges for me. One is in order to write great training or to prepare great development packages and programs, you really have to understand and have clarity around what your processes are and what you want your outcomes to be. And I I don't want to give away too much, but I work for a startup. It's, I would say it's a maturing startup. They are on the verge of amazing growth. 
They're doing some really great things, but there's this tendency to, oh, this looks like it'll work. So let's go that direction and let's move this way and let's go that way. And they want that flexibility. So they're resistant to documenting standardized processes. Makes my job extra hard because I don't know what I'm measuring against. I don't know what I'm driving to. It also makes it hard to drive decision making because if this is where you're going, you need to know how to get there. And if you can take whatever road you want, you can't compare the results of what it should have been or what you were trying to get. So there's this desire for lack. There's a lack of accountability, not only because they want that flexibility in their business, but also because they're entrepreneurial and they have this mindset. They're sharp. They're quick-witted. They're owners. And they expect everybody to follow along and adopt that same mindset, just like them. But the thing is, everybody's motivation is different. And frankly, that's what makes the world go round. So I, I, I value those differences. But trying to expect everybody or expecting everybody to behave the exact same way or have the same perspective and motivation, it's not their, it's not their business. They don't live it when they go home the same way an owner does. So creating that accountability is really important so they know what to shoot for. What is their target? Where are they aiming? And there's also this idea that if we tell them this is your job and this is your what we expect of you, that when something comes up that is, is slightly outside of what's prescribed for their job description, they'll say, that's not my job. I'm not doing that. But in my opinion, if people are happier and they're engaged because they know what they're expected to do and they can hit that target more often because they know what it is, they will actually jump to when some new opportunity or challenge arises that isn't in their job description because they want to contribute because they've been valued. So I would say lack of accountability, lack of flexibility. And then that just that whole idea of there's more to training than just putting together a slide deck, which is a perennial problem for program designers. And I love that you talked about the differing motivations because I could see that being a consistent challenge for people in different startups or different organizations where the founders are still there. They're the creators of the business, the organization. And so they have this passion and commitment and motivation that ties to that. But recognizing that everyone, every person has their own set of values, what they find important. And when we talk about that from a neuroscience perspective, we talk about our heart brains and that our, one of our functions of our heart brains and the neurons that exist in our heart is to identify what's important, what our values and what we find important to us are. And it's something that I think is a really key part of self-awareness is getting connected to and understanding that what motivates me may not motivate someone else. And if I don't understand the differing motivations, then it makes it really difficult to steer the ship, right? To get everybody going in the right direction if you've got competing interests or competing messages going out to people. So I can see how that would be a real challenge. Have you, is there anything you've done in particular to to begin addressing or focusing on how to create that understanding or create that awareness amongst employees and, and the leaders in the organization? I do. I have created training programs where I've created a process flow. And I say, does it mean that this is all you do? You touch all these other pieces. It's a system. And so keep that in mind while you're working, while you're interacting with people. How can, and, and to think about when you're, when there's a stall in the workflow, taking a moment to reflect, what is my next step? How can I get to box, if I'm at box C on the workflow, how do I get to box H most effectively? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to say? How can I be there 
be the most efficient person and task maker to do those things and to get down that way. So creating a process flow doesn't mean that life is, that you're a robot. That's, I think, really important to remember. It's to create clarification so that people can figure out where the alignment is and where there's not alignment so that they can make the adjustments if they wish to be in alignment. And I think that it's interesting in my own experience, depending on how you do or how you characterize process flow, there was a lot of resistance in my organization as well to process documentation or to putting things in writing around how things get accomplished. And it was interesting. I did at, at one point I did, I stopped calling it a process and I called it an expectation document. And we just documented like the expectations of who does what at each different phase of the process or of the activity, whatever it was. And we went through it in our in a services project management, project coordination business. And I remember after we did it, the project managers that that were there were like, wow, this is so helpful to now have be really clear on what the coordinators are doing versus what the managers are doing and what the service providers are expected to do. And sometimes I think it's hard for people to appreciate the value of the outcome before they've gone through the process, through the experience of, oh, this actually reduces some of the stress and friction that comes because now I understand and I'm not guessing every single time as to when and how things are happening. It's a time saver, right? It may seem like that work up front is costly and time consuming, but I am here to tell you how many times I have saved money and time on a project by doing the front end work thoroughly, accurately, on getting clarity around that. But I wrote down what you said where you changed it. I called it an expectation document because I'm going to use that. But I, another thing to do is with the whole mindfulness, going back to mindfulness in the way that you approach your work, there's something, there's a project that I've been wanting to do to gain compliance or collaboration with our external clients and getting them to prepare or provide the documentation we need from them. And they're the client, they're the customer. So it's a little bit, a little bit of a sticky wicket to tell them what to do. And so I've been on this mission to get something documentation for them to share with them. And I met resistance on that. So being mindful of the fact that, okay, that's a, that's a, some rocky boat maybe, or a sicky wicket. So it finally came up again this week where, okay, that challenge presented again while the leader was out of town. And I said, okay, we've talked about this in the past. I think it's time to revisit this idea of educating our customers about how to work together. And finally, he said, you know what? Yeah, it's time. Let's do it. So being mindful that sometimes it just takes a few months to get that message across and understanding that leaders have that resistance mentality as well sometimes and can't necessarily see where it's going or what the benefit will be and just to stick with it and look for the right moment. There's a book out there, The Science of Perfect Timing. Look for the right moment to say what's going to help you get to that outcome. And I think what you hit on there too is that we have this tendency to have this like bias of in terms of our own experience and that of course people know this or of course this will work or we don't need to write that down or we don't need to provide that clarity. And I think we underestimate people's ability to 
recall and remember as well as see things the same way that we do or understand things in the same way that we do and how quickly it is and easily it is for that misalignment to occur or for that lack of understanding to occur. And then the impact or the challenges that come from that can be significant. Or to think that I'm the leader. So if I'm doing it, it must be the right thing. And so everybody must, and not that they're not fabulous. I know the leaders of my company know what they're doing and they're doing a great job and they're there because they were successful and sharp and sharp-minded. And I totally respect them in that regard. But to anticipate or to expect that everybody automatically gets to the same place that they do without the same level of experience or success is a, is a disservice. And it, and again, from a neuroscience perspective, that's because that's how they were wired up, right? And so it becomes creating that self-awareness that, oh, everyone's wired differently and I need to understand them and their unique way and their, and how they work and how they operate and getting to some of whether that's motivation, whether that's how they learn, whether that's any of the, what they value, any of those things are what are going to contribute to them being successful or not. And ultimately, business leaders want their organizations and their people to be successful. That makes their business successful. I think oftentimes we just underestimate really the power of our neurobiology, the power of how people are wired and what motivates them and all of those things comes into play and impacts what we're trying to get accomplished when we don't understand how those things work, when we don't understand how important those components are in terms of helping people to understand what they need to do. There's a, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but there's a saying, I'm going to try and recall it now. You try to make a fish climb a tree, all the training in the world is not going to get that bitch up the tree, right? That's paraphrasing it. Right. But that's the thing, valuing each person's unique contribution and thought processes is what really is going to strengthen your business. Because if you can get them to perform in alignment with what their specific gifts and talents are, everybody's going to be more engaged. There's going to be more productivity and everybody. And, and so the process flows and the job descriptions and all that documentation allows you to better match those specific gifts and, and unique perspectives to the job as well so that you can put people in the right place to perform at their best. Absolutely. And that is, in the end, the goal of everyone in every business, right? Get the right people doing the work in the right way and the best way that works for them so that you can get the best results that you can for your business. So you can get the outcomes that you want to achieve. I think one of the challenges that I experience is people either thinking that because people think I'm just a trainer or just a facilitator, puts nice slides together and stands in front of a classroom and shares that information, they don't always see me as a consultant either. And unless you have a top-down leadership message that says this person can help you target your team's performance challenges, then you become window dressing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is a message that I'm constantly trying to get out there. But you can't come out and say that. Use me as your consultant. You have to earn that trust. And you need the support from upper leadership. And it takes time. And it's almost as though people have to understand the foundational need of expectation setting before they can appreciate the activity of creating the process, the training, the learning, the development to accomplish that out outcome or that objective. And so if they don't think that 
or don't understand why the underlying outcome is so important, then it can be difficult to get them to engage in the task or to, to utilize the resources that they have available to them um, when they don't appreciate why that task is so critical. And I think sometimes team leaders at the team middle le- management level, they do the coaching or they do the feedback session or they do a half hour. This is how we're going to do things this week. And they see a change in behavior immediately. So they think they're, they've been successful. But really, all they did was you had people going, oh, I have to do this. or I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get written up. It doesn't promote the sustained behavior that a more intentional and longer scale message would have. So there's a mis- misleading result there that says, oh, I got changed. They changed. They did it for two or three days. They did it for that week. But then it falls off. And that's because there's not the re- reinforcement or the message changes because the priorities change from week to week. If there's not a standardization around job descriptions, it's, well, now I need to do this instead. And yes, we need to have that flexibility and expect that flexibility in our employees. But too much change and too much open-endedness like that and change in expectations creates drama, inefficiency, increased cost, frustration when people don't stick with a behavior change because you're going to change it next week on me anyway, things like that. And I think that comes back to, again, if you stop at the behavior and you don't address the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and physiology, if you don't address all the things that are underneath that behavior, then keeping that behavior is really difficult, continuously sustaining that changed behavior because, again, the brain's just going to go right back. The body's going to go right back to its former pattern. It wants to return to that familiar state. And so if you haven't impacted people's feelings and emotions, how their connection to or understanding why something's important and connecting to that change and then have their thoughts on that this is the right thing, I need to do this because, and and they understand it. So if they don't understand it, if they don't appreciate why it's important and why it's valuable, and if they don't have the courage or the commitment to take that action, then it's not going to be sustained. It's going to, it's going, it's always going to fall off over a period of time because they're going to revert back to their neural pathways. And, And that is not obstinance or resistance. It is their biology. It's how their bodies are working. And I think there's some helpfulness in that too, in that as leaders, we can get, because I used to get frustrated when people wouldn't change the behaviors that they were trained on, when we can recognize that people aren't purposely being difficult, but they're actually behaving in the way that their body and brains are telling them to, to operate. Then we can appreciate why the added effort is so important to create the change that we want. So agreed. You said something so important. I don't know the percentages, but the most people in the world want to succeed and want to be recognized for doing the right things. Most people are not in a job to fight you. Now, there are one or two in every crowd, probably. But if we can get to their motivations, perhaps we can work with them as well. But I'm a why girl. I've always been a why girl. And you use the word obstinate. And my son is a why kid. And He has been charged with being obstinate. Teachers did not like working with him. But the thing is, if I understood the why, I was able to adopt the behavior much more quickly. I took karate lessons. And in karate, it's all about drill and practice. And I would say, but why am I doing this motion? And the karate instructor was like, you don't need to know why. Just do the, just let me make sure you're in the right line. 
No, I really do need to know why, because if I understand why, what is this action supposed to create, then I can get the motion more quickly. And it's exactly the same thing in work. I have a dear friend who uses the, he, he believes every person is a question person, has a question that defines them. It could be why, what, who, how. I have a, if you go with that, I have a kid who is a what. One of my boys is a what. What is that? And if he knows what, then he can adopt the behavior. I've tried to get my friend to do some writings on that because I think it's a really interesting concept because I know for me, I am so why all the way. There was one other piece in, in, that, that occurred to me while you were talking about the whole adoption of behavior and things like that, and that's language, having common language. Well, another challenge that I think shows up in training is when we assume they use the same words in the same way that we do. And so one of the foundational pieces for almost every program I build is establishing core definitions, core working definitions for some of the terminology that's going to be used in the business and in the performance of the task. Because if we have a different use of those words, we receive the meaning differently and we apply it. I couldn't agree more. It's actually one of my one of my signature traits in my books and in my courses is I define terms all the time because I never cease to be amazed how often we use standard terms in very different ways. And we use them without even really understanding the full definition of what that word means and why it means that. And once we do, we gain a better understanding of what is trying to be conveyed or what we're trying to accomplish. And I think some of my understanding of that also comes because I have a dear friend who's an SLP, and she really looks at the roots of words and how they affect culture and things like that. And that goes into that programming, I think, of how our brains process information. Um, and it does change society. It's It can have an incredible societal impact if we're using words correctly or incorrect, or at least choosing them in the way. And, that, and the words can also be an indicator, and this is valuable from a neuroscience perspective, of what might be going on with a person. So how they're phrasing their resistance or their struggle with a topic, like you used, what, why, what's the question that people are asking or needing in order to adopt, actually can tie to what brain center, and we talk about the three brains, the head, heart, and gut, what brain center might be engaged or might be struggling. Our head is always what, our heart is always why, the value our gut is always how, what, what, the doing, how do we actually do it and accomplish it? And so we have to be no feel and doing in order to create results. But I like to take it one step further. And most training and development is all focused on ultimately getting people to the doing, to the execution mm -hmm. and, the, and the practicing. And that is incredibly important. And if you can take it one step further to the being, to how do you change how people are being? then that's going to dramatically impact the doing. And oftentimes we spend way more time on the doing than we do the being. And if a person is showing up, so let's say they're showing up to a training and development program or event and they are totally disregulated, their nervous system's totally dysregulated, they're completely stressed out, they're thinking about their sick kid at home or the, all the other things, it doesn't actually matter at all what you do in that session, none of it's going to be retained and it's going to be a struggle. And so when we can start to understand not just the knowing, the feeling and the doing, but also the being and how do we help people show up in states where they can learn 
where they can take in more information, where they can expand. And one of the things I talked about in a recent Sherm speech I did is that I've, I have a theory that right now, because of all the stress, because of all the challenges and all the things people have had to learn that are new in the last few years, a lot of people are just at capacity. Like they can't take in more at this point. And so their resistance is actually not due to disagreement or an unwillingness or any of those things, but it's due to being just full. And so either we have to reduce that stress so that we can get them out of that 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 fight flight state, or we have to help them figure out how to gain more capacity. How do we help them understand how to access more of their energy so they have the space and the ability to to take in more information? Going back to how they come to the classroom or to a training opportunity, for sure, if they're in self-preservation mode because this is going on, they can't really focus on anything else. And we call it self-preservation and that kind of gets a bad rap, like, oh, that's instinctive and we need to rise above that. But the thing is, if you ignore that reality, you can't cut through the noise. And cutting through the noise, you also then talked about getting people to find ways to cope with all this inundation of information. I am somebody like that. And my kid is someone like that. We just need time to disconnect from that. And so also encouraging that work-life balance and take one, some of the messages that I create at work are take five minutes to collect yourself, to have some quiet time, to see what really is coming through your mind right now. What thoughts are you really having? Um, what is the reality of the environment that you're in? What is really going on? And are you interpreting it correctly so that you can respond correctly? But again, that work-life balance, finding ways to unplug. Uh, for me, it's weaving. And you can see my um, loom up there on the wall. It's um, not entirely mindless. It's just enough engagement to make me happy and feel productive. But it's not stressful. And so hobbies and time away is so important in order to reconnect, as you're saying, the the heart, the mind, and the gut to make sure they're in alignment because that time away is when you learn to recognize it in yourself. Particularly if you don't have an LED team that is into this and challenging you to find that alignment in what your motivation is. And I would take it even one step further. It is it is not just about work-life balance, because I, I think we only live one life. Whether you're at work or you're at home, it's one life that you're living in. It's finding strategies to balance yourself, to balance your body and how it's existing and how it's living. And part of that is all day long, is rebalancing, bringing yourself into coherence, integrating play into the work that you're doing, trying to say, and, and one of the things I think that our workplaces get wrong is trying to say, oh, you focus on work for eight hours a day and then you can go play and do something else is not using the optimum performance of the brain. If you provide those brain breaks and you provide those opportunities to, for people to come back into balance and to replenish throughout, you're actually going to get more output and more production than you will if people are are pushing through despite their stresses. So it's, I agree with you, it's incredibly important and it makes a tremendous difference towards how much capacity a person has, how much a person can ultimately take in and accomplish and deal with. And I think we're seeing right now more than ever before people who are saying like, I'm not going to deal with, I'm not going to deal with more. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with what maybe in the past they would have 
because they're like, no, not anymore. It's not worth it. And so it's, it is a different, it is a different world for workplaces now. Hey, Sandra, this has been such a great conversation. I want to give you a chance to give any final thoughts, any final comments that you want to make, anything else you want to hit on before we, we wrap up this episode. I think I want to add on to what you just said, and that is talking about and really emphasizing the fact that taking the time to do the work up front, whether it's documentation or thought alignment or evaluation of your process and what's my next step. To me, those are the real time savers and those are what make the difference in the end, whether it's ROI that you're looking for or just a positive mental space and, a, and mental health. It's taking the elephant, eating the elephant one bite at a time and taking those breaks. Some of our most creative people in history took those, would work for stints and then take a break and then go back when they were recharged and their creativity was boosted. And now we know why. We know why that worked. And so with AI and, and different technologies that we have that make work more efficient, we do have the time to dedicate to that thought process and to that metacognition. So let's take it. Let's Instead of trying to be productive, like outwardly productive every minute of every day, let's take five minutes to figure out where is my next best productive step. So that we can be our best selves at work, at home, or if you want to look at it as it's one life, as a whole person. I absolutely love it. I think this has been a great conversation that should give a lot of leaders, HR professionals, learning and development folks, a lot to think about in terms of the training and development that you put together and that focus on all the elements of how a human's brain and body works and how they integrate together and how to access those in ways that produce the results that you want rather than in just delivering uh, slideshow presentations that actually don't train or ultimately develop anyone. So I want to encourage all of our listeners to be thinking about that, to be really paying attention to the challenges that come with learning and development and not underestimate the intention and the effort and the value that goes into putting that in place in a way that creates lasting results, that creates long-term learning. So thank you to all of our Evolving to Exceptional listeners for being here this week. Thank you, Sandra, for coming on and sharing just so much wonderful wisdom today. I want to remind, as I do at the end of every episode, all of our listeners to just remember to always keep evolving, keep growing, keep rewiring those neural pathways in ways that allow you to have more exceptional experiences on your performance journey. I hope you have a wonderful week and we will be back again next week with a, another episode. Thank you, Jessica, for this opportunity to share what's still important to me. Absolutely. Absolutely.